This podcast is a member of WGPRN, wildgamesproductions.com. I just want you to know how, I just want you to know how sorry we are. We got into this thing with the best intentions, really. I never... Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? I want to show you a trick mother showed me when you weren't around. Welcome to Spellburn, a podcast covering the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game and old-school adventuring. It's time to party like it's 1974. As you'll recall from our last episode, Team Spellburn took a high-altitude overview of the third-party products available for Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG. This week, by listener request, we're going to dive down and take an up-close and personal look at the magic system in Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG. With me, as always, are my two much more qualified judges, Judge Job. Hey, everybody. And Judge Jeffrey. Hello, everyone. And I think I forgot to say I'm Judge Jim. (laughs) I'll, I'll do that in the tavern. And the first rule of bartending is this. GBTB. Go beyond the book. Go beyond the book. What do you have? Heineken. death. Tavern talk. So what did we do in gaming this week? Well, for me, I still had my online campaign. We're still continuing Blades Against Death. We finally brought that to a conclusion. A successful conclusion? A successful conclusion. They actually avoided one of the big fights, which probably helped them out a lot. And there's a little, oh, sort of a gambling scenario at the end. And they just, the luck was with them. They just rolled well and made good choices. And they actually succeeded in rescuing two party members from the Realm of the Dead, which made them quite happy to have them back. So that wrapped up this week. Not 100% sure which direction they're going next week. We'll see how it goes, but it went really well. Awesome. Mika, the I, I said incorrectly last episode, 12-year-old, he's only nine that plays in our group, heard about Blades of Death, and I told him about what was going on in your campaign, and he swore that when his a level zero got to level five, we were going to do Blades of Death and rescue Harry Potter. <laughs> That's awesome. It, it's a fun mod. It's, a, it's, it's fun. It's, it's well worth playing. How about you, Joe? Well, I just um, am coming off of the Go Play Northwest con. I ran the one who watches from below in a con slot, so I had to cut a bit of it out to make it fit in. It went really well. Something unexpected came up, so I, I can't really talk about it, but it was something I didn't think of happening. But it, the way it's written is fine. It handles it. It's just uh, It was just unexpected occurrence. Well, like a playtesting you don't want to talk about because it's going to be out someday? Yeah, yeah. I know the question I always get asked, how's the con burn? Y'all healed up? Yeah, it wasn't too bad. I, I took it kind of easy this year. Like, I kind of left early on Sunday, so I had plenty of time to recuperate. 
I wonder. I wonder if Joe Goodman came up with the concept of spell burn after doing a bunch of cons in a row, because they're kind of the same thing. You sort of con burn yourself down to the ground to get through it, and then you have to heal up and lay up for a while. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know it took me a while to recover from Origins. I'm made me feel like I'm getting old, and it took me several days of rest to get back over that one. Oh yeah, don't start the you're getting old stuff. <laughs> you're a pup, sir. <laughs> okay, okay. I mean, either way, it's taken me longer to recover from late nights of gaming than it used to. I, I find it like the more games I run, the more exhausted I am. If I just play, it's not too bad. And I think that makes sense. It's a much more taxing mentally, I think. And not to mention your voice, since you're doing so much more talking, that running a lot of games is harder than playing a lot of games. I didn't actually get to game this week. We have recorded these episodes back-to-back, or not back-to-back, but only a week apart, and our our regular campaign is every other week. I did get to, uh, speaking of projects that I shouldn't bring up to talk about because I can't really talk about, I'm uh, writing a system. And I got my character creation rules robust enough that it was ready for playtesting, so I ran over to Gateway Games, and we rolled up some characters, and of course, immediately found all the blind, giant loopholes in the system. Yep. So wait, you're writing your own game system? Yeah, you guys know about it, and you know why I can't talk about it. Something for uh, something Dungeon Crawl Classics related. Oh, okay. If you think about it, I've talked to you about it. I just don't want to talk too much about it, which I already have, so it's too late. I'm, I'm sure there are other people working on similar ideas, and I just want to do it first and do it best. Welcome to Tavern Talk, where we can't talk about anything. Yeah, but still do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is great. Uh, yeah, I did this. I really can't talk about it, though, so let's just pretend I didn't mention it. <laughs> well, here's my worst thing. I never pimp stuff I'm supposed to pimp on air, so here's what I can talk about. This past week, Jonah Knight and Mikey Mason very uh, generously invited me to be on their podcast as a guest, Pros and Cons. Let me get the URL up here. You can find at all spelled out, prosandconspodcast.blogspot.com. Jonah and Mikey are both musicians who are also gaming geeks, so a lot of their music tends to be uh, role-playing related. Mikey Mason did that song that was all over YouTube about she don't like Firefly and best game ever. And uh, so they had me on their podcast to uh, talk about me, which I actually enjoy sometimes. That's cool. I still need to get around listening to that one. I saw that, saw you mention you're on there. i got to get around to listening to that one. And It's weird because Mikey is like a genius, funny guy. He's a stand-up comedian. That's his, his regular sort of gig and uh, so it's hard to get on a show like that and try and be funny with professionals yeah i bet jim you've never really pimped your uh, your comic on the show either and it's really excellent uh well thanks I, i'm not pimping it right now because it's on hiatus but i gotta get that thing back on the rails when i got involved in gygax magazine it kind of went off i haven't updated it in a while but uh i'm gonna get it back on the rails now that this move is completed and some of my life issues have calmed down a little bit for those that don't know, uh, Jim also is the artist behind Marvin the Mage at uh, MudPuppyComics.com. If you haven't read it before, check it out. It's a really awesome webcomic. My love letter to first edition AD&D, my system of choice. But uh, I, I know from the emails we've got coming up that uh, DM for our uh, online basic D&D campaign is listening to Spellcast and is planning on, uh, well, I'll, I'll wait till the email comes up. Let's do that. Let's summon some emails. <laughs> You've got mail. Message for you, sir. Summon email. Okay, we got a lot of emails. I just want to thank everybody who's writing into us with such uh, interesting questions and great emails. Yeah, definitely. It's been great to see the forum posts and the emails come through. It's always interesting to see, and there's like a lot of great questions and uh, comments in there. So definitely keep them coming. So, Job, you you didn't have the emails last time. You got them this time? Yeah, I'm, I'm well prepared this time. I think you're in the front of this marching order. Our first email is from Tom Bolenbau, 
And Tom writes, Hi all, I just listened to the first two Spellburn podcasts and really enjoyed them. I don't play DCC yet, but I've been hearing a lot of good things about it. I play some OSR games, usually Lamentations of the Flame Princess, and have been gaming since the early 80s. I have some questions about the system I was hoping you'd be able to answer. I'd listened to your discussion on the character funnel in episode 2 and it was helpful, but I still have some questions. So we'll start with number one here. What happens if all the characters in your funnel die? Do you just make more? <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's pretty easy. I, mean, I don't think we have to roundtable that one. Yeah, I will say I've been known to leave characters as prisoners and various places during the way. So that if someone loses all of their funnel characters, you know, I try to present an opportunity to easily pick up the new one and not make it too hard for people. Either they come across a room full of prisoners, or like I said, one time I threw some prisoners in some baskets because they really weren't there, but we just lost so many people that it was like, okay, let's there's baskets, and inside the baskets are prisoners. So, yes, you add more, and some I usually try to work it into the adventure in a way to make it easy to continue going without too much disruption. A lot of the Level Zero uh, adventures have been written with that specifically in mind, where there will be prisoners to free, and if somebody has somehow managed to slaughter all their Level Zeros, there you go. Yeah, that's definitely where I picked up that trick from. So question two, how do you pick who to play if there are multiple survivors after the funnel and just the one you like, best of the survivors? (laughs) I have not had that problem, so (laughs) I'm the wrong guy to ask. How about you, Jeffrey? Typically, I let the player decide whether they're comfortable playing two characters or not. Some players just don't like to do that, and I certainly respect that. Some are able to roll with two characters with no problem. My longer-running campaign, a guy was able to run two characters with no problem, he he. It really didn't seem to be a big obstacle, and he had to survive the funnel. So I let him carry on with both of his. My group size, usually player-wise, was between four and five. So usually having an extra character or two being played really brought us up to where some of the adventures were designed. I really let the player decide. If they're comfortable with more than one, I'll let them run up to two once they level. And if they don't, then it's no big deal. We'll take the spare character and put him in a stable, per se, and then he can be drawn back out again later if the primary character dies. There's actually a thing, it was suggested somewhere, I can't remember if it was suggested in the rule books, where if somebody is running, there's a point if the character funnel goes on too long where sometimes players get impatient and they're like, stop worrying about it. Well, so what if I slaughter these? There's more where that came from. And the suggestion is that the judge stop handing them level zeros and get one of the players to uh, have the player ask the other players at the table who have multiples left to give them one of his. I've seen that actually happen, and it, it, it has a good effect because, you know, the other players are kind of grudging about, eh, it gives a little more weight to uh, rocking through your level zeros and killing them all. I think that, that advice came from this show a few episodes ago. Oh, maybe it came from one of you guys. Yeah, I think that was Job, so I remember that. And I thought that was a great idea, too, because that does, in a situation where someone just starts churning through zero levels, because, hey, I know I've got more on the way, I think Job's idea of making them get it from another character starts to slow them down and give them a little bit more attachment to their character to avoid losing them so quickly. My experience, too, with level zero characters is there's generally one character you want to play, just because when you you know roll all the random stats, seems like you know one of the level zeros actually turns out to have decent stats for the class that you want to play. Okay, so question number three. How do you determine the character's class once they hit level one? Do you just pick what you want? So you want to take that one, Jim? Uh, only if you're human. If you're demi-human, that is your class. But yes, if, if, you, if you're playing, if you rolled up a human character and you hit level one, you get to look at your stats and, and decide. And, and sometimes people don't go with their highest stat. Like uh, I was hell-bent to play a wizard. So even though I had a higher uh, personality and he probably would have been a better cleric, I made him a wizard. 
Yeah, Jim's got that. Uh, Demi-humans stay demi-humans as they uh, get to level one. Humans, you know, look at your stats or go with what you feel like that character should be and choose it from there. So Tom also writes, I would love to hear more about the magic system. Okay, that's good coincidence here. How does it work? Is it spell memorization like D&D or some other mechanic? I heard all about the spell tables, but not actually what they're for. It almost sounds like Role Master, but I don't know enough to make a real comparison. Thanks, guys. Uh, Tom. So uh, you guys want to jump in on that one? Uh, I think for the latter section, it's sort of a stay tuned, and we're going to go into the the wizard magic system sort of in depth and hopefully be able to show you how the magic works, how the spell tables work, a little bit about spell burn and corruption and the whole bit. John B. says, your wish has been granted. <laughs> okay, well, thanks, Tom. And who wants to get email number two? Uh, I can read that one. This one is from Timothy Callahan, who has written us before, I believe. And he writes, hey, guys, four episodes in and you're still rocking and rolling. But as you probably realized, as your Orc Centaur project was unfolding, you guys ended up showing it was a little bit more difficult than you'd first said to change up a monster. Took you guys a bit more time than you maybe imagined, or it felt long listening because, really, just change the flavor. Orc Centaur, done, move on, no need to belabor. So, here's my challenge to the crew. Pick one classic D&D monster, like say an owlbear, and then quickly come up with five variations on that monster just by using different flavor, a different name, and maybe adding one simple twist, like an effect or spell or whatever. I think that would be a better showcase of how easy it is to generate a bunch of new monsters, and you guys are even handicapping yourselves, or I am handicapping you, by forcing you to base all the new monsters off the same source. Anyway, I hope you accept my challenge. For the sake of all the little spell burners out there, keep up the awesome, Tim. Well, first of all, Tim, you're right, and you didn't hear the unedited version. It was longer. (laughs) (laughs) Very very good point. (laughs) I think we got a little confused about what we were doing partway through that, but hey, that happens. Yeah, I think that was the biggest problem with that particular segment last episode was just we went in with, I think, different ideas of what we were doing, and then that came out over the air, which drew it out a little bit. Okay, do you think we can come up with five versions of an owlbear in under 30 seconds? Or let's give ourselves 60. How about we go for three and 60? <laughs> uh, let's do five. Okay, five and 60. Um, we'll I will suggest an eagle ram well, and let me let me state why the basis of this. The owlbear sort of came around because of uh, someone mixing and breeding different creature variations, and it was done by a, a wizard that you know did this over time. And some were successes, and some were not. Quick, man, so, we only got sixty seconds. Okay, sorry, uh, eagle ram, uh, head of a ram, body of an eagle. Uh, we'll give this creature a twenty foot flight and a uh, ram attack. Okay, uh, owlbear that's the same stats as an owlbear, but it looks like a giant duckbill platypus, and it's aquatic. Boom, done. Duck bear. Okay, uh, uh, carrion crawler bear. It's got the, the four part of a carrion crawler uh, with owl bear kind of below, like just a big head coming out. Like um, It still has the, the bear talons. So it slithers, right? No, it actually walks, but it's just its head is like the carrion crawler. Like it's got a bunch of little centipede legs on the side of its head and stuff. And it's just like a big antenna or something. Okay, Jeffrey? Okay, uh, how about a hawk cougar? It's got the body of a hawk, head and claws of a cougar. This one will give a 40-foot flight to reflect a slightly faster bird and a bite and claw attack on a flyby. Okay, the owl snake, uh, a mammalian owlbear that's the same stats but no legs. It just slithers and is subterranean, so it comes up, up out of the ground and burrows instead of walking. You inspired you inspired me, Joe. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I like that one. That's an awesome one. That's a good image. Something that's that's serpentine but has fur. Yeah. Yeah, that is pretty freaky. Is that five? One more. Uh, uh, an owl bear 
centaur with four legs <laughs> with corruption magic. Whose head splits open and spells fly out. There you go. Oh, let's let's do one last real one. Uh, how about a vulture wolf? Uh, this one has a body of a wolf, the head of a vulture. It still it prefers to feed on carrion, but if hungry enough, it will be aggressive. This one has no flight, but does have a bite attack. Sweet. Okay. I, well, that wasn't 60 seconds. Maybe it was like 90. But there you go, Tim. We stand corrected, and we did better, we hope. All for our listeners. We can always cut it down to 60. <laughs> I forgot you have the power of the editor. Speed us all up to Mickey Mouse voices. Okay. I guess if it's my turn in the email, that means I got the email from DM Kojo. How does that happen? That's weird karma. DM Kojo writes, greeting judges. Uh, Well, based on your enthusiastic response to my questions on episode four, I ordered the DCC RPG rulebook, Sailors on the Starless Sea Adventure, and even some funky dice. I've spent most of the day reading the first three chapters of the book, and I am hooked. This game will be a welcome addition to my collection, and hopefully I can have my group play it soon as a one-off from our usual second edition AD&D campaign. My 2E game tends to be more serious fantasy, but I know my players would appreciate the -the over-the-top heroic nature that DCC advocates. I'm looking forward to giving it a shot. Thanks for the tips, DM Kojo. Oh, well, dude, you're welcome. Yeah, it's good to hear. I'm glad that we have another convert out there. Yeah, definitely good to hear. Glad to see. And I think you'll love Sailors. It's, It's a great adventure. You could certainly play Dungeon Crawl Classics in a very earnest Cthulian tone, but our campaign tends to be a little more gonzo. Yeah, ours tend to be that way too, more gonzo, more just craziness in general. But I agree, you could try to run it more seriously. Ours definitely drifts towards the gonzo. Yeah, I mean, once your wizard has you know maggots spreading out around his mouth and you know a third eye growing out of the middle of his forehead, it it's, takes the serious out the window. A little bit. Uh, well, thanks, DM Kojo. And uh, I, I guess we corrupted you, so good job on us. So uh, let's see. Joe, do you want to get the next one? Sure. And our last email is from Shannon, a.k.a. the Angry Monk. Hi, Spill Burnouts. I like that, by the way. That's awesome. Just wanted to say that while I haven't played DCC, you guys make it sound like a blast. Many of your old school suggestions are inspiring me to throw a little DCC mojo into my BX game. Your show is an excellent addition to the Wild Game Stable. You sound like you've been doing radio slash podcast forever. The tone, tenor, and pace of the show is very professional. Keep up the great work. I look forward to your next podcast. Shannon. Well, thanks, Shannon. Not too many times in my life somebody's accused me of being professional, so I'm going to take it. Yeah, and the compliments are definitely appreciated. It's good to see those rolling in, and we appreciate it. Now I know what's going on in our basic D&D campaign because uh, it was a couple weeks ago. We don't play every week. We ran into something. We thought we were chasing a leprechaun, and we came up on this demon, red cap, goblin, fanged, otherworldly thing. And that must be Shannon doing what he just said in the email because we didn't know what the hell we were fighting. We just killed it as quick as we could. Sometimes it's the only way to be sure. It, it, it had the, it had a power of quickly going invisible, so we had to like grab sheets up off the bed and, and run around the room and catch it first before we could kill it. Kill it with fire! Ah, well, we're all first level in that campaign, and I'm and of all things, I'm playing a cleric, so I didn't have a fireball to do that with. Or I don't lit him up. Yeah, there's always a flask of oil. <laughs> I, I, that's the thing I hate about first level. You have to actually think really hard all the time. Okay, so is that it for emails, or we got some forum posts? We got some forum posts as well. I can start with the next forum post. This one is from the osrgaming.org forums. You can like so you can contact us at forums. This one came from Matthias. Another great episode. I really appreciate the manageable length of each episode. Three plus hour long podcasts are torturous. Here is a thought. To really capture the old school 70s vibe, you should seriously think about pressing each episode on vinyl with a gatefold cover. I'd buy them. Matthias. 
<laughs> and all our spare time, we should do that. Yeah, you have to let vinyl have a comeback. I, it would fit in with DCC, though. The best album uh, covers. Maybe we could do something collaborative with Glitter Wizard. Yeah. Oh, that would be awesome. They'd be into it. The, the singer from Glitter Wizard is actually uh, a gamer. He plays D&D. Oh, maybe we could have them on the show. Yeah, we should look into it. That sounds so, cool. Somewhere in my, my demented mind, I'm seeing having Glitter Wizard and Doug Kovacs as guests on the same show and see what happens. Yeah, that would probably be an interesting mix to see how that turned out. He, he could definitely do cover album art for him. Yeah, yeah he could. Oh, yeah. Okay, uh, I'll take the next forum post. It's from, I'm going to try my best, Ferva Flerv. How's that? That works. That's what we tend to call them. Some, some of these uh, online nom de plumes are a little hard to pronounce. Ferva Flerv uh, writes, uh, First off, I want to thank Judge Jeffrey for the formal introduction to DCC at Origins this year. Thanks to him, as well as other folks in our online group, I now find myself mildly addicted to the random factor of the game. So this is a player in your campaign, Jeffrey? He is a player that he was out at Origins. Uh, he was actually in a Dungeon Slayers campaign with me online earlier this year. And then he came out to Origins to hang out, and I ran some DCC out there. And it was his first time playing a DCC at Origins. Job well done. He says, my question is this. In that DCC has a lot of third-party content in the form of modules, do you see potential for additional third-party content to cover other things, such as items, spells, etc.? You had mentioned the book of additional occupations in Episode 3, and I know of a Kickstarter that is promoting a book of 50-plus 1D100 non-game-specific lists as well. I'm not sure I understand that. It sounds like a lot of something. Do you think the DCC community would be interested in these kinds of sources? And if not, how likely would you as a DM be willing to find an item of value in another RPG or source and convert it to the rule set or module that you're running. Keep up the great work, and thanks for all the insight. Fervifler. Well, I think there's a lot of room for new third-party products like that. Goodman Games offers the DCCRPG license for free. Uh, you just have to contact them, and they do exert quality control over it. So basically, you have to give the content to Joseph Goodman to review before you release it. But other than that, it's it's no cost, and you know the adventure side is pretty well covered. But um, there's plenty of room on the you know other judge aids. Random tables, uh, classes, campaign settings, even. I don't yeah. know if Joe's got like clones or androids in his basement, but he must somehow find the time to review all this stuff because you can tell he's reviewing it because everything that I've seen has been of a certain standard of quality. Yeah, I mean, the third-party stuff out there is good. And as far as niche areas in the game, I think there's plenty. Uh, you know, magic items is something to me that's interesting just because I don't want it to be a sword plus one. I want something else cool about it. And so that's something I've been trying to steal or, you know, between the random charts and the rule book and whatnot. But something you can pick up and grab and go without a lot of work is cool. So, yeah, I certainly think there's some niche areas in the, the game for a third party to sort of support and fill. Especially campaign settings, because there's the guy working on what is, amounts to DCC Ravenloft and James Carpio's Tales of the Fallen Empire. I mean, you if you fervor flerv, if you have a favorite fantasy book or milieu that uh, is just a few notches over from traditional medieval fantasy, then there you go. You should write up your own book. We all do. <laughs> okay, I have one more forum post. What do you guys got? I've got one more, too. Go for it. This one is a stinky one-eyed ogre writing in saying, Good show again. Score on the Michael Curtis interview. I enjoyed barely surviving Tower Out of Time. I'll have to run it down the road. I'm trying to set up a one-shot of Gathering of the Marked at my local game store. I finally got the PDF version of the Dungeon Alphabet. I've been trying to get my hands on a hard copy for a while now, but it seems to sell out as fast as they print it. Keep up the good work. And that's another one. Thanks again for the compliments, stinky one-eyed ogre. We appreciate it. 
Yeah, our game store is still stocking the deluxe version of Dungeon Alphabet, so some distributor somewhere must still have them. It's a cost, yeah. It costs 10 bucks more, but that's not that bad. Yeah, I thought I saw that one of those photos across your Facebook somewhere that showed the picture. That I'm like, ooh, they still have that one. So if nothing else, call up Gateway Games and more in Cincinnati. I'm sure uh, Judge Todd would uh, sell you a book. Are you talking about the gold foil one? Yeah. yeah uh, I'm pretty sure that retails for $30, but the original was only $10. So I guess it's how bad you want it. <laughs> yeah. I, I As soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, God, I have to buy this. I'll explain it to my wife later. I'm not rich, and I have both versions, so but I don't have to worry about aggroing a wife. Yeah, I still have to watch out for that part. So sometimes it's like it's easier to explain later. What's all these boxes showing up? Uh, nothing <laughs> for the house. <laughs> <laughs> nothing to see here. Well, that'll wrap it up for uh, emails. If you'd like to write us, you can contact us by email at theband at spellburn.com or through our forums at osrgaming.org. And that'll take us to Mighty Deeds. Wait a second. I have an idea. That's plenty for the both of us. I move for no man. <laughs> Ow. Okay, Jeffrey, this particular episode was uh, your mastermind ploy. What are we going to do here? <laughs> um, so what we're going to do is, under the Mighty Deeds section, we're going to look at the spell wizard spells and wizard magic. We're going to sort of do a quick summary of the basic spellcasting mechanics, spell checks, failures, how the result tables work. I know we've had a couple people, how do the tables work, how do they fit in? So we'll just touch on that. A little bit about mercurial magic and spell burn and corruption. So we're going to touch on those, and then we thought, together we thought it'd be almost best to take a zero-level character, and let's make him a wizard, and we'll roll up his spells on air, we'll determine his mercurial effects and manifestation, and then we'll cast a couple of those spells, actual on the air, to see how that how it all works. So we'll talk a little bit about some of those items, and then we'll actually uh, demo some of it through a live on air, take someone to wizard, let them cast some spells, and uh, hopefully that'll help clear up any kind of confusion people have about how the spell tables work, spell burn, and, and we'll see how that goes. And since I absolutely hate to play wizards among all classes, I volunteered to roll up a level zero candidate. And we if, practically had to beat him down with a stick to keep him from volunteering for this this uh, <laughs> being the wizard. I did it this morning, and I thought I was all loaded up for bear. I'm going to have to roll, you know, with my dice rolling ten or twelve of these guys to get one guy with a high intelligence, and I nailed it second try. Second level zero I rolled was a candidate. And uh, what do you want me to do? Just go through the the stats and the basics first. Yeah, for the character that you've got. Yeah. Why don't we just cover the stats real quick? I did absolutely everything from the main Dungeon Crawl Classics rulebook, including his name. There are tables in the back if, to help you roll up names. So this is Sotar Patarth, whose uh, peasant occupation was Wainwright, which means he makes wagons and carts. And he came with a cart and a club, and then there was a table to roll on on what your cart was full of. And instead of tomatoes, dirt, and rock, I got a cart full of your dead. So That was great. I love that on the sheet. Honest, all honest rolls. So this is the guy, bring out your dead. I, 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 I've never seen that part in the rules. I'm like, really? Get the hell out of here. Strength is 11. His agility is 9. His stamina is 12. None of those give him any bonuses. His uh, personality was 14, so he probably should have been a cleric, speaking of. He had a luck of 16, which makes him a, a gold character to have, and an intelligence of 13. His lucky roll, which you roll when you roll up level zeros, um, is whatever birth sign you're born under. He was uh, a survivor of the plague as a child, so his luck roll is he gets plus 2 on all heals. 
the 13 intelligence gives him one bonus spell, so he'll get five spells at first level, and uh, three languages, which rolled up as common, alignment tongue, which for him is neutral, and kobold. And he's got a club and 45 copper pieces and a wagon full of dead bodies, and uh, random equipment was one vial of holy water. So that's your level zero right there. There we go. It sounds like he's ready to ready to cast some spells. I'm ready to be the player with my level zero ready, to, and I gave him 10 XP, so he's ready to ramp up to one. I'll let you guys be the judge. See what I did there? Ha ha. Well, first thing we're going to do here would be pick your spells as a wizard. So the way that's determined when you become first level is you randomly roll on a table. So do you have your uh, book handy, Jim? I do. I have my book and my dice all set to go. So you're going to want to turn to page 127 in the core rulebook, table 5-8 wizard spells, and roll for your spells. And first level wizard would normally get four spells. With my intelligence bonus, I'm going to get five. So let's see what we get. There's 27 outcomes, so I'll roll d d30 and just ignore everything else. Sounds good. And first one was a nine, which gives me Ekum's Mystical Mask, which is actually a spell my character in our campaign has, and I haven't figured out how to actually use it very well yet. We're going to do a little thing about what the spell is, or just worry about that when we start casting. I think we'll worry about that when we start casting, since I think that'll be easier. What did we learn two episodes ago? Ekum backwards is Mike? Yes, yeah. we did. <laughs> oh, and I rolled a six, so I've got Color Spray. That's nice. That's a good one. Nice little blinding one. A 18, which gives me mending. I suppose that's a decent utilitarian spell. And 21, which will give me uh, rope work. And 25, which will give me ventriloquism. Is that five spells? Yep. That's five. That puts you at Ecom's Mystical Mask, Color Spray, Mending, Rope Work, and ventriloqu- ventriloqu- <laughs> Ventriloquism. Thank you, Job. <laughs> So this is awesome. We actually get to use one of the optional rules for when this exact thing happens. Because here I am at first level, and I've got one decent combat spell, color spray, and that's it. Yeah, actually, so there is one rule that says when you uh, hit first level and uh, get your spells, if the spells that you have aren't viable to play as a wizard, then you can re-roll up to half of them. I think the rule says you can pick half of them. Oh, does it? Determining spells at a new level. Here we go. Although the concept of randomly determined spells is entertaining and fits with the original concept of Ancient Magic, the author has found that it can be disruptive to actual play. No one wants to play the wizard with four useless spells. If the random determination results in a level one wizard with useless spells, the author recommends allowing the player to drop up to half the randomly produced spells and choose replacements. And that's on page 124. So, goodbye, rope work and ventriloquism. Hello, magic missile and sleep. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Awesome. And here's something that... I don't think we've been playing right in our campaign. The next step after you learn the spell is to determine its manifestation. Correct. So why don't we pick one of those spells, and we'll dive into the other things that we need to do. So which one do you want to do, Jim? Oh, Magic Missile. Okay. So the next thing that we do is we roll on the manifestation chart on that particular spell, and that is how the spell visually manifests in the caster's hands. Basically, you roll uh, when you learn the spell, and I've actually played it wrong in the past where people were rolling on the manifestation every single time they cast the spell. Yeah, we've actually done that in our home campaign, and I just learned that what you said, that you roll it one time, which makes more sense. So I rolled a 10, which means my magic missiles look like force axes, throwing little force axes through the air. That's pretty cool. Love it. Okay. Okay, so the next step was to determine mercurial effects for your spell. So let's just see this for uh, magic missile. Do you have that table in front of you? I do. So once you, it's a percentile die. 
And here's one important thing, and this is the big difference between the wizard and the other spellcaster, the elf. You get to actually add your luck modifier times 10% to your percentile dice roll. And in general, the higher you roll on the mercurial magic table, the better the effects are. So the guy I rolled up having a 16 luck has plus two to his luck roll, so I'm adding 20% to a percentile roll. Correct. Yes. I just want to roll something really weird in Dungeon Crawl Classic-y. <laughs> I rolled an 11, so that gets me up to a 31. Okay, 31. Unwanted attention. Casting the spell draws the attention of a powerful supernatural being who watches the wizard for 10 minutes. Roll a d4, and there's a few manifestations for that. I guess I'll read them real quick. So one is bloodshot eye opens on the wizard's forehead, seeing everything the wizard sees. Two, a small animal, cow, frog, etc., appears and follows the wizard around. Three, the wizard and his allies feel as if something huge and terrible is standing right behind them. Four, an agent of the supernatural being appears and interrogates the wizard on use of the spell. So roll a d4. That is awesome. Can you imagine every time you throw a spell, a cow just shows up and looks at you? That would be so weird. I rolled a three. Okay, so we got... The wizard and his allies feel as if something terrible and huge is standing right behind them. And uh, I, I blanked on that. that It's not a cow, it's a crow. Oh, crow. But a cow would be so much cooler. <laughs> yeah, a, a cow would definitely be the cooler item there. Wait, wait. And for Tim, it could be a cow crow, which would be a new version of the owlbear. There we go, and we're still making monsters on the fly. <laughs> okay, this is almost like a live play session. So we've got a first-level wizard who, among his spells, has got magic missile that manifests as force axes. And every time he throws a spell, he gets the feeling that he's being watched and doom. Is that what it was? Yeah. I could roleplay the hell out of that because that's sort of my normal paranoia anyway. Yeah, and it watches <laughs> you for ten minutes. Oh, a judge could have a lot of fun with that. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. That's definitely in there for the judge, I think. <laughs> Crying the whole game to the halt. You feel like you're being watched. What? <laughs> and it's worth mentioning at this point, too, is some of the mercurial effects are bad or could possibly be bad. For example, there's one where um, when you cast it, uh, like if you if you rolled a, a one on the percentile table, at great cost, every time the wizard casts a spell, someone he knows dies. Judge's choice. And I have a wizard in my campaign with that particular one. And my most recent victim from that was I killed their favorite poison dealer in the city because <laughs> they knew him and worked with him frequently. And I had a, one of the times he cast that spell and that guy disappeared. That's fantastic. Let's do sleep, too, since those would be my two main combat spells at first level. Let's do a mercurial magic for sleep. All right, why don't you roll your manifestation first, and then we'll do mercurial. So sleep is on page 155. Hey, uh, Job, can I get you a soda or anything? Um, is this what you do at the table? Yeah. To, to get the... <laughs> yes, you can get me a soda. <laughs> just, just greasing the wheels a little with the judge. 82. Oh, well, I'm not even reading the rules. Manifestation is a D4. I'll save that for the Mercurial Magic. So I rolled a 2, which means a manifestation on my wizard sleep spell is going to be swan's wings, which rise from the earth to enfold the target. So I, th- nice. I throw sleep, and Swan Lake starts playing. <laughs> okay, so you're going to keep that 82 for the uh, Mercurial Magic? I sure am. It would be 102 with my uh, plus. Yeah, I was just going to say that. So we'll do uh, 100 here. It says roll again twice, but instead of rolling percentile, roll 4d20, modified by the li- wizard's luck adjustment, in increments of 10%. Okay, hang on. 4d20. So 4d20, and then add your the, the, the bonus. And we're going to do this twice. Prepared for every dice situation here. So total the 4d20? Correct. 
correct. Uh, 25. 25. And then we add our 20% for your luck modifier. So 45 gives us your first mercurial effect. No change. The spell manifests as standard. Aw. I actually like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you're rolling twice on there, that's not too bad of a result. Oh, well, I pumped it up this time. That's 48 plus by 20%, so 68. So 68, Mirror Magic. The spell causes an eldritch echo that duplicates the wizard's appearance as if he had cast a mirror image spell with the spell check of 16 to 19. However, each duplicate image created saps the caster of a single point of personality until the image is dispersed. That's so cool! Yeah, I think that's a pretty good one. I think most wizards I know would be pretty darn happy with that one. Uh, Especially wandering around with two hit points. You know, you're like, (laughs) attack them. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, no, that's a good one. I forgot to add hit points. Two two hit points was his level zero hit points. Oh, he's got two more. He's up to four. Whoa. Okay, so now it's time to actually throw some spells, right? Yeah. And you want to jump in the DM seat here, Jeffrey? Uh, Yeah, that's fine. We've got the spells determined. So what happens now is when we cast a spell, Judge Jim is going to roll a d20. He's going to add his intelligence modifier, which is a plus one. And he's going to add his caster level. And with that, for whatever spell he's casting, we look it up on the chart and we see what the result is. It could be a failure, nothing happens, it could be a minor spell, or it could be something rather significant. So for this first casting, that's how we're going to roll it. So we're going Magic Missile or Sleep there? Uh, I'll throw Magic Missile because that's my go-to spell in the campaign. And I'm going to do my best to uh, give myself spell corruption because that's never actually happened to me in a regular campaign game yet. But I didn't. So first first magic missile I attempted to throw, I rolled a 15, and my intelligence bonus is 1, and my level is 1, so that's a 17. Okay, so what we would do then is we'd go to the magic missile entry in the book. You said 17? Yes, sir. So Judge Jim casts, his caster throws a single missile that does damage equal to 1d4 plus caster level. He must have line of sight to the target. The missile never misses, though it may be blocked by certain magic. Example, magic shield. And the spell, the difficulty check on most of the spells at first level is 12. Yes. One is going to be like a loss, failure, and worst possible corruption, patron taint, and misfires. Two through 11 is simply you lose the spell for the day, and it's a failure. Nothing happens. Once you hit 12 with the first level spells, now something's starting to happen. So this, in a way, answers the question asked in the email about how does the how Vancian is the magic system. The character has memorized a spell. However, you, unless you roll beneath a 12, you can continue to throw that spell. You don't forget it. So the very next round, in fact, Jim, if you want to cast it one more time just real quick, we'll see if we get something different, read a different result. Yeah, that was a three, so there it goes. So in that case, he lost the spell, and nothing happened, and now he is unable to cast the spell any longer unless he spell burns to retrieve the spell. Which, if this were early in an adventure, I would absolutely do. Yes, I I think most would, especially with the spell. The rule for that, if if you lose a spell and you want to cast it, you're required to spell burn at least the level of the spell um, to be able to cast it. So this would be a good point to back up the truck and just talk about Spellburn as a game mechanic in general, since we named the podcast after it. (laughs) Spellburn is a game mechanic that allows spellcasters to burn off some of their ability points. So those are, what is it, strength, agility, and stamina? Right. Yeah, it's the physicals. I always get confused with D&D. So you can actually burn some of those points to improve your spell check. Unlike luck, where you can use, you can burn luck at any time. Spellburn has to be done before you cast the spell. So you say, okay, I really want this spell to have a good effect this time, or I really need to make sure it hits. I'm going to mark, you know, say two points off of my agility, two points off of, you know, my strength, etc. 
until you get the number of points that you want to spell burn. And that's the mechanic. What it represents in role-playing terms is the wizard decides he really needs a spell to hit, so he like cuts off part of his ear or, or sl- slashes his wrist and bleeds into the spell. And there is a chart if people want. You can either make up your own and you know say it, or if you're stuck for ideas on page 109, there is a chart for spellburn actions, and you can randomly roll and figure out what your wizard did to spellburn. You got a D24 handy, uh, Jim? I do. Give it a roll. I'll tell you what it says on the spellburn table. Uh, eight. Eight. The wizard agrees to aid followers of a patron saint. Oh, that so would... these are just little things that you might have to do. That was pretty innocuous. So there's two, thi- two things for spellburn. You can use it to juice up your uh, spell check if you announce it in advance. And if you lose a spell like I just did, you can burn that level of spell in spellburn to regain the spell for that day. Uh, I, I believe it's per casting, not per day. So, like, say you lost Magic Missile and you wanted to cast it, every time you're going to have to spell burn at least the spell level, which is level one, to be able to cast it. Ooh, okay. Well, that's we've been playing it different, but I'll take your word for it. What was your uh, your ruling on that, Jeffrey? I have not heard it ruled that way. I usually did it for the if you called, so I'm trying to look at it now to see. A wizard may use Spellburn to cast spells he has lost for the day through previous casting, for example. If a wizard expends a lost spell's level and ability score points, he can cast the spell as if he still had it. For example, a wizard could burn two points of ability scores to cast a second-level spell. I almost do read that like Job does, which is each casting of it that day would require Spellburn. I'll have to let our judge Marcos know that, so we're running it right. Yeah, that's on page 108. Yeah, page 108 top. Regaining spells via Spellburn. And I think that's one of those subtle things in the rules. I think Job's reading it right, and my players are going to be in for a treat next week. <laughs> <laughs> I love how the system is so new. Here, here we are. We're su- the supposed experts doing the big podcast, and we're learning along with the listeners. I like that. Okay, I'm absolutely going to spell burn this character to get the spell back because I'm going to do more than just get the spell back. As an example, play example, I'm going to spell burn him down to the Stone Age and then see what kind of spell check I get off. Do the, do the classic move that people do at cons, and I'm very guilty of this myself. You're towards the end of the adventure. There's a big bad in your way, and you decide, since it's a one-off, to spell burn the character into the Stone Age, and then we can talk about why that wouldn't work in a campaign. How's that sound? Sounds perfect. So his, uh, he hasn't got a lot to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spell burn him down 10 points or 11 points, so one to get the spell back, and 10 points of spell burn. So that I'm going to knock his stamina from a 12 all the way down to a 4. That'll give me 8 of those points, and his strength from a uh, 11 to uh, an 8, which will give me 3 more points. So in a, in a game setting, that wizard immediately became very weak. His strength is 8, and his stamina is 4. If you had, if I had bonuses on my stamina, they're gone now. Yes. Right. You you update your your modifiers after spell burning. So you know if you're getting down below eight, then you're you're going to be minus three at any you know attacks or something. If you know that use strength, for example. And you'll lose hit points if you burn the stamina. Oh, really? oh yeah, good point. Oh, he's only got four hit points, so let's just go ahead and work that out. What does that take him down to? So you went to four on stamina. Yeah. That will be four. Would be a minus two modifier. Okay, so so <laughs> in a campaign, I would have to be insane to do this. Yes. Because this guy's going to have to lay up in bed for a month to get this uh, stamina and uh, strength back. Yes. But I'm going to throw a magic missile again because this character wants to do that. And now I have a plus 10 in addition to my normal bonuses on the spell check. Correct. So now let's see what my first level magic missile spell does. And I just rolled a 19. Okay, so that's 19 plus level is 20, plus 1 for my intelligence bonus is 22, 
and then 10 more points takes it up to 32. Did I do that math right? Uh, sounds right. To, you took it to 32? You got 31. So 19, right. level 20, 21 for your intelligence modifier, and then another 10 from oh, another 10 from your spell burn for 31, right? 31, sorry. 31. So in this case, instead of being a 1d4 plus caster level, we, he turns into a caster throwing 2d6 plus 1 missiles that each do damage equal to 1d8 plus caster level. Each missile can be aimed at a separate target. Range is line of sight, regardless of whether a direct path exists. The caster may launch a magic missile through a crystal ball or other scrying device. These missiles have limited ability to defy magic shield and other protections. Compare, compare this spell check against the spell check used to create the magic shield. If the magic missile check is higher, the magic shield is only a 50% chance of absorbing the missiles. Roll individually for each missile. Any missile that makes it through do damage equal to 1d8 plus caster level as noted above. So at the cost of being in bed a month, this guy for one round became a machine gun. Nice. Yeah, it's a drastic difference. I mean, it's, it's an encounter changer for sure. And, and maybe we should explain why this caster would be in bed for a month. Okay. So yes, we should. Every day that... Every, every day that you um, do not use any spell burn at all, you regain one ability point that was spell burnt. So in, in uh, Judge Jim's case, he burnt 10 points. 11. 11 uh, uh, points of abilities. You, you have to go 11 days without using spell burn to get all those points back. And is that it, or is he, is he laid up and have to rest too? Um, I guess it would be up to you if you wanted to go adventuring with two hit points and, rest <laughs> up and all the other penalties. I think I would find the safest inn in the town and just stay in my room for 11 days. And another interesting rule that I learned while reading through this, too, is that, um, that I hadn't been playing before, is that if you spell burn and you roll a natural one, you permanently lose one of those ability points, so you can't recover them. That would suck. But I, I think that, too, that, that mechanic is going to help, uh, you know, curb people from uh, relying on Spellburn too much. Yeah, This is the reason I describe the DCC uh, magic system as a system that outvancians Vancian magic because it, the wild, unpredictable nature of it is very much like what happens in the Dying Earth novels when like Kugel the Clever, who's not a wizard, he's a, basically a rogue, try, starts trying to get... He gets his hand on a spell and starts trying to get it off and things don't always go as intended. Yeah, it's one of the things I like about the magic system. It's sort of the blend of the Vankian system with something a little bit more, so it's not, oh, I've got one spell, first level, to cast, now I'm done for the day. Because I, I, I like the memorization aspect of magic, and I've always sort of liked that. But this gives you a way to multicast, but it's not predictable, and you might lose it, so that you might only get to cast it one day, or you might cast it twice. So yeah, it's, it's one of the things I like about the spell system. And, and I, I can testify from playing an 8th-level wizard in a uh, pre-gen module scenario that uh, when you start getting two action die per round on the character and you're firing two magic missile spells, all this craziness starts stacking up fast. Oh, I bet. That's got to be an awesome sight. So I can't make myself roll a 1 and fumble my spell check, so we'll just have to simulate that. Okay, I'm going to roll a 1. Oh, so now we get to talk about spell corruption. So I just I, I decided... So insanely throw one more magic missile and I, I tanked the roll and rolled a one. So in this case, you look up the result on the table which is lost, failure, and worse. We roll a 1d6 modified by luck and depending on what result we get will sort of tell us whether we get corruption and a misfire, just corruption or patron taint if there's a patron involved. So Jim, go ahead and roll a d6. Oh, and let me interject 
Um, modified by luck. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to interject one thing too here is the wizard at this point also has the choice to burn one point of luck right now to avoid the corruption or patron taint. Excellent point. I yeah, that's get that. That's very good. But let's proceed like that. You didn't do that. Yeah, now's the time to do it if you're going to do that. All right. Uh, I rolled a three, and modified okay. by my luck would make that a five. Ah, well, then it's just a misfire. <laughs> well, that's no fun. So, okay, hang on, hang on. Let me okay. let me cheat. I just rolled a one again. Okay, modified by luck puts you to three. Three. So you get patron taint or corruption if you have no patron. And this guy has no patron, so corruption okay. it is. And corruption is a, a roll that you can make on the magic missile. It's in the magic missile entry. And he will roll a 1d8. I love how the individual corruptions are by spell. Because uh, I watched a guy take spell corruption and he screwed up his flaming hands and uh, got himself toasted pretty good. <laughs> and I rolled a 4. 4. So on a roll of 1 through 4, your caster's hands and forearms change color to match shades of most commonly cast magic missile. And that is a D4 roll to see what you get on that. So roll D4. We're going to see what color your hands and forearms change. Uh, Four. Vivid red. Very nice. So as a result of completely failing that magic missile roll, Jim's wizard has now has vivid red hands and forearms. <laughs> Forever, right? Forever, yes, unless you quest for it to get rid of it somehow. But yes, for the most part, forever. Okay, well that is a quick tour through how the magic system actually works. So anything else you guys want to cover in this from the player side? Uh, i got two more points. One is some spells offer the option of casting the reverse of the spell. So for example, Jim got Mending. You can, if you look at the Mending spell, it'll tell you right at the top if you can cast the reverse of it, which is, uh, I think it's called Rending. And basically, when you memorize your spells for the day, that's when you get you would choose whether you want to cast the forward or reverse of the spell. And basically, you roll on the same table, you just use the opposite of whatever the, the, the forward version of the spell like is. Instead of Enlarge, I know that day I'm going to want to shrink people instead, so I memorize the reverse. Right, and they call it Reduce um, under Enlarge. And good thing that you mentioned in in large. The other thing that I wanted to mention was spell concentration. So if you look at some of the spells, and enlarge is one of them, if you look at the casting time, some of them say one action, where that's where you would use your, your action die. And some of them say one round. During the round that it takes for you to actually get that spell off, you have to maintain concentration. So how do you do that? First off, you can only move at half speed. So you can you can only walk, basically, very slowly, which in game terms is, is moving half speed. And if you take any damage or, or you fall or there's some kind of interruption to you of being able to cast that spell, you have to make a DC 11 save um, or your spell might be interrupted. And in a future show, Job, there are even deeper mechanics to the magic system that we can talk about. Oh, yeah, yeah. It really goes deeper. We'll probably do like an advanced magic show in the future. Like what happens when two wizards start duking it out. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, there'll definitely be an advanced magic show in the future for the podcast. Today we've covered all the basics of what you should expect being a level one caster. How you learn the spells, how the material magic makes every spell different for individual casters, right? Yes. How the spell check itself works. Spell burn on top of that, how that works, how to either recover spells as you cast or make make sure that spell is going to go off the way you want. And then finally, corruption for when spell casting goes bad. Oh, you just reminded me, too, of one more one that a level ca- one caster might want to be aware of is crits. If you roll a natural 20, what, what do you get? 
in spellcasting terms, you get an additional bonus equal to the to the caster level. So at low levels, it's not so great. You know, level one, you're going to get a, to add one to your your spell check roll. But as you get higher, you know, uh, you know, like a plus six is definitely enough in most cases to bump a spell effect up from one level on a chart to the next higher one. I can tell you what has happened to me in a play test is where I decided it was time to pull that convention stunt and spell burn my uh, wizard down, or it was an elf in this case, down to the Stone Age, and had all kinds of modifiers jacked into my spell check, and then almost tanked the roll. I didn't get that great a spell check. That sucks. Yeah, that's not a good yeah. day for the caster. So it can happen at the best of us. Okay, well, let's flip it over to the judge's side and go to Mercurial Magic. Great, all-seeing eye of Agamotto, you must come to my aid! Doesn't weird stuff happen when spells are messed up? I don't feel anything. So that could have gone better. Material magic. So in uh, this portion of it, we're going to talk about all the same things we talked about except when you're a judge in charge of this circus, how do you keep the monkeys from taking over the circus? Exactly. So I think we have a couple topics on on this side. One of them is, obviously, as a player, it's sort of fun to have something to do with, with the, the magic. But when you're playing an NPC spellcaster, that can get interesting. So we'll spend a couple minutes maybe talking about some helpful hints at running an NPC spellcaster. In order to keep things manageable for me at the table is I tend to pre-roll the spell effect ahead of time. So if I know the caster has you know certain spells, I might do a roll or two on those spells so I know the first time they cast it, this will happen, and the next time they cast it, this will happen. And I do that just sort of save the time because I've got enough things to manage at the table that I'll sometimes pre-roll that result. That's one little thing I will do sometimes when running a caster at the table. That's really interesting, Jeffrey. I mean, because in, in, as, as the guy running the game, that helps you know how the story is going to turn out a little bit in advance. A little bit, yeah. And like, While all the player pandemonium is going on. Right. There's just so much question about this. Can I just can I do that? And it's like if I'm rolling on the table, it seems to slow things down just a little bit if I have a spellcaster. But if I already sort of know what the effect's going to be, it just, I don't know, it helps me run a smoother game. The players aren't getting to see my dice hit the table necessarily for that, but I feel like pro of being able to, the caster's able to do this and seem like it came off is is worth it, at least when I run a caster a lot of times. Well, I know you guys have both run a lot of campaigns. Um, one of the charms of Dungeon Crawl Classics is it's just about written to be almost munchkin-proof and power gamer-proof, but that doesn't mean it's going to stop player wizards from trying. How do you guys handle that guy at the table? For me, running a lot of con games, this comes up all the time. So, you know, you have the wizard who, you know, sensing it's the big bad and decides to alpha strike or supernova, burn all their points down. They might even burn all their luck points down. And basically, you know, spell burn themselves to the Stone Age to get, a, you know, the highest possible effect on the spell. For one-shots uh, and, and con games, the, uh, the way you would deal with that, or the way I've dealt with in the past, is you're going to expect it. You might as well just uh, fudge their stats a little bit and take some of their their, uh, their points off beforehand. When you do your pre-gens, I would just, you know, if you rolled a, a, an 18 strength for the wizard, I might just bump bump that down to a 10 or an 8 even. Maybe not an eight. That's that's kind of cruel, but I would probably bump it down to a ten just just to take away some of the abuses that might go on in a campaign. Obviously, you don't want to affect uh, you don't have a, the direct effect of the characters like that, but you can always introduce story elements where uh, you know, say that if if the wizard multiple times is is spell burning to the Stone Age, well, he doesn't know that that's the last encounter that's going to go on, or he doesn't know that. 
during his 13 days of recovery that something important comes and happens and he's going to have to do it with with less ability points that almost sounds like a whole game session where the wizard is just trying to avoid trouble till he heals up and 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 you make it impossible for that to happen the wizard's on crutches like running away from uh <laughs> cow bears or whatever i mean the way and i think it's easier in a, in a full campaign a lot of times to deal with spell burn i know in my running campaign my casters are typically still scared to burn too far because early on within our first two or three months that one of the wizards he spell burned he was sure this was the last encounter and there's going to be an easy trip back to the city because they were using these teleportation type devices to travel from place to place and he spell burned the heck out of something it worked great I mean pretty much ended the encounter and they went back to this teleportation device and started to head off well I decided the patron was cashing in on a favor so they saw the, the city they were returning to start to come into this hazy focus, and then they got whipped away into the middle of nowhere, uh, the whole party, with the wizard's patron saying, I need a favor from you, and I need you to go here and do this. So I pretty much took them, instead of going to go back to rest, they went straight to another adventure in the middle of nowhere, and he was spell burned down. And, you know, it, it, since then, people know I'm, you know, you never know when that patron's going to cash in on a favor and, you know, Maybe the adventure, that adventure is over, but now you've suddenly been caught off without a chance to rest. And just doing that once so far has really reined in at large spell burns out of my campaign. It would make a player think twice about gimping up his wizard too badly. Yeah, so I mean, that's worked well in the campaign situation for me. So in summation, in a, in a, in a well-judged campaign setting, that spellburn issue sort of takes care of itself. It's- oh, yeah, definitely. I think it does. Yeah, there's just so many ways for a judge to, within the world, address concerns. It's not always an easy 17 days in the, in the inn, you know? And maybe it's the first seven are easy, but after that, like Job says, some world event or town event pretty much requires we got to go. <laughs> we can't wait the next 10 days. You're walking around owing a patron a favor. It's a pretty good chance he's going to come cash in when your spell burned down. Yep, yep. I know I got a question I want to ask you guys since you guys run uh, campaigns. Um, in uh, terms of an ongoing campaign, how do you role play the part of when a wizard levels and suddenly he's rolling the, – the mechanic is I'm rolling random spells and, and the, char- the character suddenly has them. How do you role play that out? What actually happens in the campaign? Where do the spells come from? In the book, there's several suggestions. They say basically that you know you're the, that wizard might be researching multiple spells for whatever reason they they just can't master learning that spell. Um, it's a little bit arbitrary at first level. If you're you know at a higher level, there's also some just suggestions of you know say a wizard stole a a magic tome from a, a more powerful wizard or obtains a scroll of a, a spell that's level that they want to learn at that. Um, there's, you know, if there's a story reason, then you might as well um, let let people kind of pick their spells in that kind of a case. That's yeah, right. I, I'm that's what I tend to do. I tend to drop, uh, you know, a scroll here or there, or a magic tome, or you know, in the case of random, the the primary wizard in the campaign I have has a patron, so it's you know he's beseeching the patron for more knowledge and between research and beseeching the patron, that sort of explains the the patron decides he'll give you this uh, aspect of it. You know, that's a good point, too, Jeffrey, is uh, we didn't really touch on this, but do you need a patron to cast spells? Not in my game, though most everyone likes to get a patron for some reason, but it's not a requirement. They could flit about various entities they've read about in books without necessarily bonding to a patron. Oh, not me, Jack. I'm going to avoid that as long as humanly possible. 
Yeah, I know. Some people want to avoid it, and some, some I don't know. My one really enjoys it. It's, there's a whole little back drama playing between his patron, and he's the one that came back from the dead, so it's going to get interesting as to, because he's already been asking, does my patron know I'm alive again or not? <laughs> because he's got something up his sleeve. He hasn't quite told me yet, but he's, uh, he's, very, <laughs> curious about, he's very curious about whether his patron knows he's alive again or not. So, <laughs> My advice to him would be to buy the judge a uh, soda. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so if you're listening out there, Mephrodis, uh, soda might do the trick. <laughs> and, and some of those patrons have some pretty killer patron spells. They, they do. And I think a lot of the patron spells are supposed to be just a little bit more powerful, slightly more risk because of the patron taint, I guess. Well, we were actually going to talk about patrons and dungeon denizens. Do you want to go to that, or do we want to wrap up more judge tips for how to run the magic system? I think we pretty much covered Mercurial Magic. What do you think? Yeah, Jeffrey? I think we've covered Mercurial Magic uh, from the basics. I think anything left is more could be well fit for the advanced magic show we do sometime. So I think we're good. Okay, let's go to Dungeon Denizens. Go on, boys, chop his head off. Right, silly little Peter. Jesus Christ! My armor is like tenfold shields. My teeth are like swords. And in this section, we're normally talking about the monsters in an adventure. So uh, in your show notes, Jeffrey, you thought this would be a good chance to discuss the patrons. Yeah, I thought we'd talk a little bit, maybe just about the patrons. Uh, it is another facet of the the wizards and where they can get power from and uh, influence a campaign. So I thought maybe we'd just, uh, if anyone has anything to touch on about a patron, how they work, and then maybe we could take a closer look at uh, Sethricon from the book, just at some of the, uh, the things. Just sort of an overview. Don't want to get too lost into it. Just to put the knowledge out there, again, some of the patron stuff I think could be covered more in depth on an advanced magic show. It's hard when you're playing this stuff all the time to remember that there are people listening that have never played it at all. So what's the difference? I'm, I'm going to be the guy who doesn't know what's going on. That's easy role-playing for me. So what's the difference between a patron for a wizard and a, a deity for a cleric? A patron for a wizard can be a demon, devil. It could be just an extremely powerful wizard from the past that has, you know, I don't know, become immortal or extremely powerful. It doesn't have to be an actual deity, per se. It could just be an extremely powerful supernatural figure or force inside the game world. Job, do you think that's on mark? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. Um, you know, a patron doesn't have to be a god, but I think a few of them are. Have any of you guys read the old Steve Ditko Doctor Strange comics? I have not. Oh, oh, well, that's going to be a worthless analogy then. The the one of the villains is Baron Mordo, who's a, you know, an adversary magic user to Doctor Strange, and he's constantly bargaining with this extra-dimensional being called Dormammu, and he gets a lot of power from him through these little portals. And that would probably be a good candidate for a patron as described. It is someone, you know, it's a powerful being that a wizard has learned through some ancient knowledge to tap into for additional power. And the Dungeon Crawl Classics rulebook comes with some example patrons, but it's by no means encyclopedic. No, definitely not. It's more as an example or template for people to craft their own in their own campaign. The campaign I'm in, actually, the one of the primary patrons that people are using is is one that actually came from some of the purple, purple uh, sorcerer stuff. Is one of the ones we're using. So writing of a patron is actually pretty hard. Like there's a lot of words in there. I agree. I, when I did a 
when I wrote the patron up, because the one in Purple Sorcerer was just mentioned by name. There was not a full write-up for it. The wizard was immediately interested in this person, so I wrote it up. And I think I was just shy of 4,000 words to get a complete patron write-up in there with all the invoke patron checks and patron taints and things like that. It's a lot of work, but it's certainly nothing any you know regular judge couldn't do for his own campaign. Spoken like a true player. <laughs> Oh, I mean, I, I write stuff all the time. I I just haven't uh, run Dungeon Crawl Classics yet. But I mean, it, it, you're right, though. It's complicated because you, it's not just coming up with the, with the guy. You've got to come up with his invoke patron spell checkpoints. So it's got to be one one whole spell right there with all the table with the different spell checks. Uh, the the patron taint and corruption that'll happen if you screw it up. And, and you know, and so we talk about that. It's like, well, why would someone want a patron? I mean, we've got Jim who's like, I don't want a patron, and I've got my players who are like all about the patron. And, and I think from my campaign, the biggest reason they like it is because of invoke patron. When they're in a lot of trouble, they'll spell burn like crazy and pull an invoke patron, which sends some sometimes up to an avatar of the patron to assist in a battle. And you know, that's an, that's an encounter changer. And so my wizards tend to think the risk is worth it in that case. Yeah, but there is a risk-reward equation there, just like spell-burning your character down to the ground, because the reward is good in that invoke patron check at the end of an encounter, but then you owe the guy a favor. Exactly. Which uh, any good judge will cash in on at the most inopportune time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, we were going to focus on one particular patron, and I think you guys picked uh, Cezricon? Yeah, that's who I put in, Cezricon. And I think mainly just sort of look at the... What makes up a patron, I think, is probably the best perspective to approach it. He's a good one, because he's not like an outright demon prince or anything like that. He's just a all-powerful, chaotic, evil magic user. Yeah, exactly. And a good example of someone that's not a deity that you could claim as a patron. Well, I'm a, I'm a player, and I've never played before, and I decide my wizard wants a patron. How do I get one in the first place? How do I get Cezricon as my patron? If you're a wizard, you're going to have to learn the patron bond spell or get someone to cast it on you. If you're an elf, you actually start the game with um, patron bond spell and the invoke patron spell for free. It doesn't count against your, your total spells learned. So basically, you, you cast the patron bond spell for the particular patron that you want to bind to. After that point, if you have the spell invoke patron, you can also uh, invoke powers from them. I've noticed that additional patrons and the patron bond spell show up frequently in the adventures, too, as written. And what's an example of one of those? Uh, I'm thinking of, uh, see, this is what happens when you're a visual person, the adventure with the frost giant on the cover. Oh, yeah, Beyond the Black Gate. Oh, okay. Okay, I actually haven't played that one. So a patron figures largely in that one? Uh, The guy at the end you can take on as a patron. Got it. Okay, yeah, there are, yes, I think a lot of the adventures have a new unique patron that you can take on. Yeah, from that perspective, I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah, there seems to be new patrons in a lot of stuff, which is sometimes, it, 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 yeah, because a lot of them are just, you know, here's the patron, and sometimes they don't get a full write-up, which, you know, leave a little work for the judge to build up. Well, Cezricon was an interesting one to pick because it's one I've seen in actual play. Uh, Wizard, not me, in our party, uh, had him as a patron and did invoke patron at the end of uh, the Imperishable Saucers to try and fish our fat out of the fire. And uh, I don't know who wrote Cezricon, but Michael Curtis seemed awfully familiar with the spell check results when we mentioned that in the podcast he was on he immediately went to did he teleport the wizard a thousand miles away <laughs> we did i noticed how quickly he was on that i'm like wow that's like uh encyclopedic knowledge of the patrons <laughs> he, he's either got it memorized or he's the guy who wrote it exactly so you know a, a, as part of a patron like i said we take a look at cesricon and the the parts that make up a patron is there's the invoke patron check results and that's when you cast the spell invoke patron 
typically calling upon the aid of your patron. In this particular case, uh, teleportation is one. Cezarkon teleports the caster and up to eight allies to a location 5D100 miles distant. Well, the I caster lo- cannot choose the location, but the party's not in immediate peril upon their arrival. So, Get your bacon out of the fire. Exactly. It's, it's when you're desperate and you call and something big could happen. In this case, you just get whisked away from the trouble. Uh, but not necessarily to a place you want to be, just a place that's not going to cause you peril. I love the minimum successful spell check on Invoke Patron for Cesar Khan on a 12 or 13. Cesar Khan cannot be troubled by such an insignificant petitioner, and then he just gives you some hit points. <laughs> yeah. Get away from me, son. You bother me. Yeah, the, the patrons can be fickle. And then a, a patron has a, a patron taint, which is things that can uh, – sort of corruption with a patron focus. I think that describes it accurately, don't you think, Joe? Yeah, I think so, as long as you can say patron taint without giggling. <laughs> I don't get it. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Save or Die was episode 69, and they were just laughing, and I didn't understand what they were laughing about. And I was listening to the episode later, and I'm like, oh, 69, I get it now. So you can explain, <laughs> explain to me later. But Patron Taint is a spell corruption, right? When you when you tank your Invoke Patron spell? Yeah, when you when you uh, tank that, or like even when you did your Magic Missile, there was a, a Patron Taint option. It, the result you actually rolled said if you don't have a Patron, you'd get Corruption. Otherwise, we probably would have rolled on the Patron Taint table. So let's pretend that happened. Then roll a D6, I believe so. If our caster earlier in our example had had a Patron who was Cethricon and he'd failed that Magic Missile roll, we'd be rolling a D6 on this Patron Taint table. Wait to see what happens. A 1. A one. So you are incited to madness and brimming with occult knowledge. The caster spends his next action carving a third eye into his forehead, inflicting 1d3 points of damage in the process. Oh, I've got to do that because I might kill myself here. That probably would with the stamina loss you took on one of the spell burns. Uh, a one. I'm still alive. Okay. Hanging uh, in there. <laughs> <laughs> barely. And then upon returning to civilization, the caster seeks out a tattooist who inks a third eye on the caster's forehead using exotic inks, costing no less than 1d5 by 100 gold pieces. That was the result there. Each one of these entries, there's six of them, have three results. So you can roll this result again in the future, and you would read the result under the section that says if this is the – if you rolled this result a second time, then there's an additional related thing. And the particular, this first one has each has to do with eyes, something to do with the eyes. With the third time being the caster stabs a dagger into each of his real eyes, blinding himself. There's Ow. a three percent chance per level that self mutilation self mutilization brings the PC's third eye to life, though. So you may stab your two normal eyes, but that your third eye that you've carved on may come to life and allow you to see or something see i feel like we should just stop the podcast there and i mean because if that didn't sell you on this system (laughs) i love it i mean you that 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 kind of stuff is not going to happen in a pathfinder game yeah exactly magic is is dangerous and it's going to take a toll on your body there's no avoiding it it's just kind of staving off the inevitable strange eyes and other appendages that you might acquire along the way. Well, we were talking a few episodes back about our favorite art in the rule book. One of my second favorite art is the Doug Kovacs illustration that specifically shows successive stages of this poor wizard getting more and more spell corruption. Yeah, that's a great one. He starts out all clean cut and by the end he's all over looking nasty. Yeah, I love that one. That's what I always when when I'm, people are like, "Well, what's the magic system like?" I always turn to that page. And I'm like, "That's what it's like." He starts out like the good guy in Pirates of the Caribbean and ends up like the octopus face pirate guy <laughs> by the end. Yeah, 
so the next part of a patron has patron spells. Cesar Khan comes with uh, three new spells available to people that have claimed him as a patron. And as Joe mentioned, several of these are a touch more powerful than the normal spell. And to be able to tap into them, I believe you had to have rolled well on your patron bond roll to begin with. So you get, it, there's new spells with it. Uh, and those spell write-ups are very similar to the standard spells. You know, with, there's a manifestation for it. There's this whole spell chart and everything like that. And finally, they close out with a spell burn section. So if you're a, if you call Cesarcon your patron, there's a modified spell burn chart that you can use when you spell burn. And the patron spells definitely. I mean, they show up in the spell, the random spell table. And uh, if you've taken on a patron and you want one of those spells when you get to level two, I mean, that's there's definitely a story reason in there for you to be able to have that spell. I guess I'm going to have to bite the bullet just for the role playing experience and take on a patron. You guys have sufficiently intrigued me. Your judge will love you for it, because it's a great tool for them. <laughs> I struggle sometimes. Mike Curtis was giving me a hard time at the convention, because when I'm in con mode, where, okay, we're getting this party through this alive, um, sometimes I will do what like you just said your players did, where they I'll avoid, avoid a major encounter just to try and get through the adventure in one piece. And sometimes that's no fun. You should just go ahead and take a bite of the apple and see what happens. It'll be interesting. I'd be anxious to hear your experiences with it. I drink it. What happens? I, I, de- I decided looking at the uh, patrons in the uh, uh, core rule book, if I was an elf, there's the obvious the elf king is the good one. But if uh, my wizard picks one up, I, that elemental prince of air seems like the least uh, harmful and most innocuous of the patrons to me. I mean, yeah, if, you're, if you're not going for the elf guy, then yeah, the, I would say yes. I mean, at least he's not some power mad, ultra chaotic mage or a demon. Yeah, Sesricon is a bit of a brutal one to choose. He did. He did us no favors in imperishable sorcerers. <laughs> okay, well, um, it feels like we covered a lot of ground in one episode. Yeah, we did. Magic is a pretty big system. Like I said, for listeners, I mean, take your time with it. Hopefully, the examples we've done have maybe help intrigue you, or you know, make something clear, or give you an idea of what people mean when they say spell burn or corruption or whatnot. But uh, it's not too bad if you sit down and take it step by step. And actually, at the table, it plays out pretty quick. You know, just it's a little slightly new system to learn and pick up, but. Especially if it if you're all new to Dungeon Crawl Classics and you and a brand new judge have just sat down with the rule books, if you play through the character funnel, that gives you a chance to get the hang of the overall system. And we just transitioned to spell casting seamlessly in our campaign. I mean, I didn't see anybody break a sweat because it's only first level characters. Yeah, yeah, and that helps because it's not so overwhelming when you just get the first levels and they're pretty simple rolls and the tables are easy to look stuff up on. So. Yeah, you don't necessarily have to use every single portion of the magic system. I mean, it works just as well if if you just roll on the on the spell table, go from there, and not have to worry about all the little intricacies of you know burning a luck point to avoid corruption and stuff like that. Okay, well, let's wrap it up and go to uh, what is turning out to be the more predictable of our segments, uh, Patron Bond. Who are you? Your new lord and master. What orders from mortal, my lord? Oh, don't trouble. One thing I can't stand is people groveling. Oh, it. Patron Bond. Okay, well, I want to start out saying that I'm, I'm definitely giving the, uh, the magic system a fumble. I, I took the time to get the gold foil special limited edition of the book, and, you know, I got a chicken, and I went through the spell tables, and I could not actually cast these spells. <laughs> Wait a minute, you lost me. You know, I, I believe Joe wanted to cast these at the house. Yeah, I'm... Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I mean... 
You know, uh, dude, don't do that to me. I was, I'm so naive sometimes. I was going to applaud you for giving us our first hard-assed fumble on something. You, got the, you know, you got the sacrificial dagger and the black candles and, you know, you got the robe and everything, man. This is, this is a big investment, especially the, you know, price tag on that uh, limited edition. And all you end up with is a dead chicken. <laughs> I, I live for the people that want to start up the whole controversy from the 70s about doesn't this lead to cult real stuff and junk like that i'm like the same way monopoly money doesn't spends at the udf no it doesn't have anything to do with it well i'm living proof it doesn't work <laughs> how about you jeff uh you know i i have to uh, it's like a broken record with me but i mean it's a critical hit it it made me Magic was fun again. I mean, I still play a lot of my, you know, my traditional games and and things, and I still have a grand time with those. But when you sit down at the table with the Dungeon Crawl Classic spell casting, it, and someone goes to cast that magic missile, it's not ho hum. Okay, roll your damage dice. It's what's going to happen, you know. And it's fun from both the judge's side of the screen and from the player side of watching. Even if I'm not the wizard, seeing what's going to happen. Come on, roll high. So. I, again, for the excitement it puts into the game and the randomness, I, I broken record. I have to give it a critical hit. My home pan- campaign group are so into this that now, whenever we find anything in an adventure that they think might have a spell in it, they give it to my character, and then everybody gets stands back. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's the main thing that attracted me to the system in the first place when I first started hearing about it last year, and uh, it, you know. It's its own thing. I am just as happy playing in an AD&D first edition game where the Vancing Magic system is more like engineering and physics, and I know exactly what's going to happen. I've, I've played that way a majority of my life, and I have fun with it. But um, I am really loving the unpredictable nature of this as, as, as a completely different mechanic. So critical hit for me, as if I had to tell you. <laughs> so, you know, I'm thinking at some point we just need to be on Goodman Games' payroll. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, we we do seem to lack the uh, this this part's horrible. And, you know, I don't know. Maybe we're too nice on it. But let's let's throw it to the listeners. If you, if if anybody who's playing the game has got something that maybe they think could have been done better or differently, uh, write us and tell us, and we'll do a show about that. Yeah, I think that's good. I get, if we, if we can't give them our fumbles or misses, and let's get them from the audience and and get some other additional feedback that way. Yeah, great idea. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for this show. And remember, never split the party unless the party's already split. Thanks for listening, everyone. See ya! The Spellburn Podcast is a member of WGPRN and is produced in association with WildGamesProductions.com. The Spellburn theme music is provided by the band Glitter Wizard. You can find them at GlitterWizard.Bandcamp.com. No chickens were harmed during the production of this episode. Any resemblance to patrons and deities living or dead is entirely coincidental. When visiting Spellburn, our guests stay at the Dante Hilton in Gehenna. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Spellburn. Spellburn.